<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Don't miss out on breaking China news. Do, instead, go on over to SupChina.com to subscribe to a daily email that summarizes all the best reporting on China in one quick digest, complete with links. If you prefer to sup on apps, get the same daily dose with a SupChina mobile phone app that you can download from the Apple App Store or from Google Play. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm joined right here at the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina, by a man from the truly deep south, from the Republic of South Africa, indeed. Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, how are you, Jeremy? Swimmingly, Kaiser, despite being in your new home state, which is the home of anti-transgender bathroom laws and recently famous police shootings. Uh, but that's all bad karma, and I'd rather tell our listeners how they can get some good karma. Please go to the Apple App Store and leave us a glowing review. Uh, great idea. Actually, I think that's a tr- capital idea. Uh, anyway, we are joined also from the bookworm in Beijing by our good friend David Moser, academic director of the CET program there in the Jing. How are Doing you, very David? well. We wish you were here. Yeah, I wish I were there too, actually, although we wish you were here. This is, uh, you got to come <laughs> hang out with us. We're all, we like our new we're digs. all here. <laughs> hey, Jeremy, what do you think of our new digs? It's uh, a very, very nice studio. We, we're, we're going up in the world. Yes, we are. We've kitted it out very nicely. I think there are some pictures that you can find if you look at our Facebook page. Anyway. Today's guest is one of those pesky overachieving millennials, uh, a young writer named Alec Ash, uh, who has previously been a guest on our show. Uh, but he now returns with a book under his belt. It's called Wish Lanterns, Young Lives in New China, and it was published a few months ago and has already garnered some critical acclaim from a variety of sinologists and China watchers. Welcome back to Seneca, Alec, and congratulations on your book. Hello, Jeremy and Kaiser from afar, and I'm delighted to be on the show again. Nice to have you. Alec, before we actually talk about the book, let me ask you about one of your other recent achievements, maybe a dubious achievement, uh, completing the Pyongyang International Marathon. So so tell us about this. I mean, what was it like being a useful foreign stooge for the Kim Jong-un government? And what the hell decided, um, it made you decide to run it? And also, how did you train for such a thing living in Beijing? All good questions. Um, and I look forward to seeing me appear in a, uh, in a propaganda film um, for North <laughs> Korea, hopefully, uh, hopefully not in the next uh, couple of years. As you said, it was slightly difficult to train uh, when you live in, in Beijing. Um, and uh, I wasn't anywhere nearly ready enough for, for running a full marathon, but had a, uh, a pretty fun time. And a very interesting time, regardless. A, a somewhat bizarre experience, as you could imagine. But uh, also a slightly... No, oh, no, no, do tell. I, well, I need some anecdotes. Sh- sure, well, it's a slightly sort of... All of these tours into North Korea are very tightly managed, but um, the marathon itself felt more like uh, organized chaos. And so when you're actually out there running, especially with a full marathon, which is four 10K laps around the city... By the end of it, all of the other runners tend to thin off and the um, 
the residents who've come out to see you slightly thin off and go about their business as usual. So there was a certain point about three, three and a half hours in when I, I could have just uh, sort of done a runner really and sort of disappeared down some alley in North Korea if if, if I had that uh, inclination, which which I don't. Don't say you weren't tempted. <laughs> um, uh, if, if that was the opportunity to defect, if there ever was one. Uh, they had a pretty harsh time limit on it. You had to complete the marathon in four hours, which was a bit of a stretch. Uh, <laughs> what? What? Wait. Yeah, no. it was. This was my. F- I thought. I- yeah, it's it's it was it's only been recently. This was only the third year it's been opened up to amateur runners like me. So uh, it was it was a little stretch. I kind of just just made it into the stadium before they uh, closed the closed the ceremonies and 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 did my victory lap while they were giving the the gold medal out to the winner. So. Well, good for you. That's something I'd just never be able to do, not here, let alone in Beijing or in Pyongyang. Congrats on finishing and on uh, avoiding incarceration in a North Korean prison, and I hope another book comes out of this. (laughs) Okay, let's turn to the book, Alec, Wish Lanterns. That's something that I've uh, read with great pleasure and also recommended before on the show. Uh, maybe you could just start out by just briefly introducing the the six characters that you interweave throughout the the narrative. Right. So my approach in this book was to introduce a generation of young Chinese, which is my generation, um, born between. People try to put us down. They don't need no education. Um. So I, my approach to that was to find just six characters and tell their stories, um, a very narrative approach, quite in-depth into the lives of these six people, all between, all born between 1985 and 1990, um, and then kind of get out of the way. Uh, another thing about the book, I'm not in it at all myself. Uh, I, I try to tell their stories as, as simply as I can from their perspectives so that we can inhabit their their worlds. And I, I chose these people... Um, not to not to represent any particular types per se, but from a wide variety of of backgrounds which hit different notes among the generation. So there is Snail, who is that's his English name. His Chinese name is Miaolin. He's a country boy. He comes from rural North Anhui, one of China's poorest areas, and he gets to university in Beijing and becomes addicted to World of Warcraft and drops out of college, works in a KTV for a while. Um, it's a very sort of funny KTV near on the outskirts of Shanghai um, and eventually manages to return and graduate and, uh, and lives underground as one of, the, one of this uh, rat tribe, so-called, in basement flats. So that's on one extreme and on the other there's Fred, who's the daughter of a party official in, uh, in Hainan Island, this tropical, semi-tropical island to China's far south, who studies politics at, uh, at Beida, at Peking University. And there's a, a, there's a rock guy called Lucifer. There's a girl from Xinjiang. You know these names are, I mean, you, you pick them for their names, right? I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I enjoy. <laughs> we've, got, we've got Snail, Fred, and Lucifer so far. I, I, and by rock guy, Alec, you mean uh, he, he plays in a rock band? Yeah, he, right? he played Not in a band which is, some, is some Beijingers might know. It was called Rustic. It, uh, it, it sort of won a couple of competitions. and then. But as I picked up his story, he was um, kind of coming off the other end of that wave and... Um, going on reality TV shows a lot, these dating shows and singing shows, trying to, to, to capture fame. 
and so he's he's more of a sort of alternative lifestyle. Uh, there's a girl from Xinjiang called Mia, and there's a a military brat who grows up in a, a military compound called uh, Dahai, and uh, and a girl from from the far freezing north called uh, Xiao Xiao. Um, so it's a mix of characters. Two of them meet and get married, and it's kind of surprise twist about of a third way through the book. Although I won't uh, spoil the surprise by saying which two it is. You've just ruined the surprise. <laughs> oh, okay. The sequel will be something about uh, divorce in in China. You can keep on following this, 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 the, the, the characters. Anyway, go ahead, Jeremy. Um, yeah, I was just going to ask, um, Alec, uh, could we focus on one of the characters? Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Snail. I mean, this is someone I can relate to. Uh, you know, internet addiction is, is something I think I probably suffer from. And the affliction also seems fairly representative of a generational shift in China. Uh, after all, his parents, I, you know, may never even have owned a, an electronic calculator. How did you meet him and what's his life story? Yeah, I think the official definition of internet addiction was six hours online a day, which uh, I think I think would all which is slightly disquieting for us all, perhaps. But um, Snail Snail has one of my favourite uh, stories in in the book. As a writer, you're looking for a development of a story, development of a character, someone who who goes through something and comes out slightly different at the other side. Gaming addiction and World of Warcraft has always kind of interested me about the about the generation and addiction in any form is a is a terrible thing. In Snail's case, it's it was a form of escape. He comes from a very humble background and didn't really have many opportunities to achieve much in his in his physical life. And as I came to get to know him more, I realized that this this was why he was gaming because in World of Warcraft, his avatar was this uh, scantily clad female elf mage that was his his persona in World of Warcraft, and she had all of the bells and whistles and um, you know high mana and all of his scores and all of this impressive equipment and tons of gold. So everyone who encountered this elf mage in World of Warcraft was very impressed. So he had this um, the sense of achievement. Changjiogan uh, is how he, how he describes it, and to me that captured some of the pressures, some of the desire, the need for escape when you have so much pressure heaped on you by your parents, by society, by yourself, and you're living in a very competitive society. And I think that's that's one thing I wanted to convey about about him and his story. It's both and his story is both this upwards movement coming, he's the first in his family to go to university and he goes through all of these difficulties and obstacles. So it's this upwards movement, but it's all always also this sort of brick wall which I found a lot of people a lot of young people came up against all of these obstacles in the way which prevent that upwards movement as well especially people coming from the provinces to the that's capital. right that's right and it's sort of the sort of the way I see class operating in in, in Beijing is sort of that if, if you come from from the boondocks from the sticks then you're you're always looked down on in a way and he, he certainly found that and he's kind of shunted out to the very far edges of the city or living underground in these basement flats and the neighbor upstairs whose toilet would sort of drip from his ceiling would never would never acknowledge him it's like this underclass within uh, within Beijing and and presumably you met him somewhere on the continent of <laughs> Kalimdor in the, the universe yeah. of Azeroth I met online I actually, <laughs> I actually uh, posted a because I met a lot of these people online chatting with them um, on, on forums and so on, as and one I, does in China, <laughs> right? So I, I met uh, Snail on a on a World of Warcraft 
forum recently on a on a Baidu Tie Ba, I posted a notice kind of like, "Hey, I'm writing a book about Young China, and you know, is any any gamers out there?" You mentioned you mentioned that you kept yourself out of the narrative, uh, but th- th- I'm getting a, an a, an image of how exactly you interacted with with these with these people. You know, maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, how how did you you, you did you actually hang out with them and become you know best buds with them or or was this something that was just an arranged interview format or or how did you actually do this collection of material sure i mean the the idea is that the more time you can spend with people the better you can understand them and in different contexts especially so i i spent about four years on this book a a couple of years just finding these characters and uh, building trust with them and for the first few months i didn't even have my my notebook open. I, I told them from the outside I'm writing a book, but I just wanted to get a feel for them and their lives before doing some longer um, recorded interviews, delving into the backstory because a lot of, the, of their stories are back reported. But I found that the best material was always when I'm not directly asking questions with some sort of an intention behind it. It's just when I'm hanging out, it's when we're going for a meal, it's when we're going to the karaoke together. The book opens with this little teaser when Da Hai, one of the characters, is um, he's digging up a a diary which he buried ten years ago, right. and that was a detail which which came right at the end after I'd even submitted the first draft of the manuscript. I was just hanging out with Da Hai, and he mentioned, "Oh, hey, I'm going to this mountain in Miyun to like, <laughs> dig up this diary which I buried ten years. Do you want to come along?" <laughs> yes, please. Um, so I always found that the telling details came not when I was in kind of interview mode and just when I was just when I was there with them down 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 the KTV. So I, I mentioned that that these people have mostly come from outside of Beijing. Uh, the people in your book have this in common, and uh, they are all kind of drawn to Beijing to seek their futures. And in, in fact, you know, there's a pretty grim picture of the rural urban divide that really emerges from their stories. Life in the countryside and and the less well developed cities seems pretty bleak and sterile. And Beijing, you know, shimmers like the great grand city of Oz. I mean, it holds the promise of all these fulfilled dreams. How, how representative are these? I know you didn't set out to pick representative youth, but I think you know, maybe by serendipity, or whatever, you do end up with something that's fairly representative. No, I, and and, and this theme is is a good part of it. Yeah, um, I think. A person can only represent themselves, but I I did look for people from all walks of life to build, hopefully, a bit of a mosaic of the generation as a whole. Um, I hope that the the theme or the mood of that mosaic isn't all bleak. And one of the one of the themes in the book and the idea behind the title, Wish Lanterns, is that what holds a, a generation with all of these struggles together is this drive and this ambition to create new and better futures for themselves, this sense of aspiration and ambition. But at the same time, that does that, that often comes up against a lot of challenges and there are various and a lot of compromises, which I think are a part of growing up and coming out of the 20s, but especially so in China when it's difficult to, to be a young mm-hmm. guy born in Shijiazhuang trying to be an international superstar, which is, uh, which is Lucifer's story. Um, so, Alec, you pay a lot of attention to cultural and historical detail. Um, and in fact, I mean, there are really two stories that unfold in parallel in the book. One one is the path of development of these young people and their generation. And the other is the path of development of, of China itself, you know, after 1989. 
uh, from Lee Young's Crazy English to Dark Horse CDs, the science fiction craze, the resurgence of Buddhism, the D22 rock scene, internet cafes, and so on. Um, was this dual nature of the book, the individuals and the generation and the story of China, was this part of your intent? Maybe we should quickly ID Dark Horse CDs, oh, yeah, which right. you mentioned. You, it, yeah, you, yeah. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll do that, maybe. C- C- CD catalog cutouts that were basically remaindered CDs from usually American record companies that ended up on shipping containers sent to Eastern Europe and to Latin America and, of course, to China. And, you know, they'd come off trucks. I mean, just but tons of these things that... And really the only place you could get interesting rock music in right. the late 90s. And, and it was, like it was a before buck. MP3s. Daco is a good right, example. Right. It's a kind of flag of that particular generation. If you talk to a, a young Chinese person of a certain age, maybe in the late 20s, early 30s today, they would all know that and they would have all bought these CDs. Whereas now the, the kind of post-90s kid would all download music. Um, so right. to answer your question, I, I, I like to think that the book also functions as a record of a certain period of time in maybe from sort of mid 2000s up until 2015 which was the time that I was here and 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 sort of uh, learning about China myself and the time in which these people I'm writing about were growing up and coming of age mm-hmm. well uh, western readers might feel that you know, I think aside from Fred, who is you know this Guara died, uh, this you know daughter of a, of a party official, there is little sign of what we would call any kind of overt political consciousness here, right? How, how do you see this? I mean, the the apoliticism of your characters. Do you think that this is typical? Okay, this is uh, well. This this was one of the unusual. This was one of the questions I was trying to to pick apart uh, in the book, um, and I think it's a it's a valid question for people to have. And often it's said that this is a generation who are who are apathetic, who don't care about politics. It's true that um, for a lot of the people who I write about, politics just isn't on the radar. And a phrase that I I hear the most often when I ask people about politics is like. Um, like it's politics is their concern it's not our concern uh, Mia isn't political at all simply because there's nothing she could get from it uh, Lucifer as well it's totally disconnected from their lives and their ambitions and so I think that there's a, a useful distinction between apathy and disengagement because of course you care about the future of your country but it's difficult to be engaged with politics if there's this overwhelming feeling of powerlessness and uh, the inability to 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 direct that uh, future at a higher level. But um, to complicate that that further, in you mentioned Fred in Fred's narrative, which is more she's she's the most intellectual. Yeah, her name and, comes from Frederic Chopin, <laughs> right? And 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 friends. Schubert, a kind of conflation of those two for her English name. And she studies politics in in Peking University and briefly flirts with the far left, um, which is the uh, the sort of quite uh, nationalistic branch of Chinese politics. And I I wanted to write her story because I consider consider that through, through my research to be a pretty mainstream, educated political opinion in China, which is socially quite liberal, but mm, with no desire to change the system. And I think that's a pretty, pretty, pretty mainstream educated idea in China that um, you would want to see China reform, but you wouldn't want to radically change or rock the boat in any way, as I think a lot of people 
sort of assume or sort of feel that the generation uh, might want. So that was one thing I wanted to convey with, uh, with, with Fred's narrative. Yeah, and I don't think anyone would challenge that characterization either as being very mainstream and quite common. Well, it also goes yeah. it also goes into uh, something that you know Kaiser's also talked about too is is this feeling a lot of people will read this book looking for that information specifically, which is the the political consciousness of these young people, because as Kaiser said, there's the the, the usual Western trope is why don't you hate your government? Right. <laughs> why why aren't you rising and, up? And you paint a picture of you know how that how they engage or their their so, a picture of their disengagement as you said. So I tried to tell two stories, well well three with the disen- with the with the sort of disengagement, but there was thread story of sort of an educated, yes, there's lots of things to improve, but we don't want to change the system. But there's also a a, a really deep groundwell of, of dissatisfaction and malaise in this generation. Uh, I, th- I I saw that in Dahai's story more. He's a netizen. He had a very rebellious, anti-authoritarian streak after growing up in this military compound and pretty kind of anti, anti-authority in China. Um, cared very deeply about the place. But as he grew up, he kind of kind of gave up he kind of got disillusioned when he realized that there was no change happening no action happening and he himself compromised with authority as he um, hit the hit the end of his 20s which is perhaps not an uncommon story in China and so I wanted to pick apart uh, the fact that yes there is a lot of various different types of sentiment and often you would have two opinions at the same time you can you can have two contradictory p- political opinions at the same time you can be patriotic and critical but through a lot of people it comes to this point where there's a sense of um, powerlessness to to change anything and and sometimes that can lead to disillusionment yeah mm-hmm. and since you mentioned that uh, maybe just moving ahead to the the end of of their stories there's a sense in which all of them had to compromise their dreams in some way or in some sense none of them really came to fulfillment and maybe that's normal that dreams just get crushed <laughs> that's the that's the norm <laughs> not the not the rule but uh, that's <laughs> that's <laughs> but what it's called so so what can we take away from this this is obviously not a china specific thing but what about the what about their uh, attitude and you're, you're still in touch with them I'm just curious about mm-hmm. you know, how they feel now about uh, what their dreams that you traced and, and the result. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, people will interpret this this book in different ways. Uh, I'm just I'm just sort of laying the stories out there. For me, I find the ending there is a lot of compromise. Um, there are these brick walls that several of them came up against, but I found that there was still this drive to go on, and and so for me, there's still this sense of optimism for for all of them in in to varying degrees. And the final image of the book is uh, one of the people I wrote about, um, Xiao Xiao, who uh, returns to her family home in way, way far up in uh, Heilongjiang province, having you know gone through some compromises and, and struggles in her life. But she sets loose this uh, this wish lantern, and she's still um, casting her sort of ambitions and aspirations onto it. And that's the that's the image that we chose for the for the title and the final image of the book. So I think that there is still a real desire to change their individual futures, which I think defines the generation, and that uh, and that and that that it's combined has a transformational potential as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, Alec, you know, is is compromising on dreams 
is that actually unique to this generation of Chinese people? I mean, isn't that the story of China? After all, one of the most popular Chinese characters of which people like to hang up calligraphy in their homes is Ren, like to, to endure, to suffer quietly. Hasn't Chinese culture always encouraged compromise for the sake of family and country? And there might be some hope that goes with it, but uh, aren't these people just repeating the same pattern? China, leading lives of quiet desperation for 5,000 years. Um, I'll, I'll evade the question by saying that I don't think China has a monopoly on, on, on compromise either. I think, I think it's something which, uh, right, which of not. Any, any person kind of goes, goes through, or unless they're very lucky, or, or some sort of bratty fool or die. Um, and I, I really wanted to write a book about young lives which happen to be in China rather than making any uh-huh. kind of comment, broader comment about China. And I hope that it could be um, a book more simply about being young as well within this particular environment of China, in which, which there are inevitably compromises and you change your opinions and you might start more idealistic. But I, I do think that there's a real, there's a total difference in this generation from what came before it, exemplified in the generation gap so if if jeremy you're you're thinking of the kind of compromises of their parents generation those were of a totally different kind and there are so many more opportunities for their kids and 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 their futures and this is one of the sort of central another central theme in the book is this gap and this uh disconnection between the people i write about and their parents which is often a cause of great distress i'd say the biggest cause of yeah, distress for, for young people in China. If, you, if you're a young woman and your mum's ringing you up every day asking when you're going to marry yet. You know, people talk of China as a country where you've, you've squeezed 100 years of uh, development into 30 years. Well, if that's true, then that would mean that a parent of, a, of, of someone today... You have would a generation be, gap every... Yeah. yeah, closer to a grandparent or great-grandparent in, in their attitudes. Right, 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 right. I mean, I've, I've often made that observation. Um, I want to talk about Mia from, you know, I mean, she's from Urumqi, from, you know, the capital city of the Xinjiang Autonomous Region. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you read about Xinjiang in, in, in the Western media, it's always described as restive in recent years. You know, it's probably most famous outside of China for the ethnic unrest that the government often labels as terrorism and that many Western journalists do not. Uh, what was Mia's relationship with her, you know, her Uyghur compatriots like? We were peers, people her age, uh, and and how does she see the whole ethnic and, and political problems of Xinjiang? So she she was friends with with Uyghurs. Um, her school was just down the road from the the Grand Bazaar, and and that that uh, large mosque um, in Urumqi. And I don't think she really, it didn't really sort of it wasn't really on her radar or registered so much as it, as it is maybe for for uh, people of an older generation. Or for Western observers, Mia's story isn't isn't one about Xinjiang in terms of its uh, restive Uyghur right. population, but I, d- I did think it was Mia is a post-racial <laughs> you know, Xinjiang person, <laughs> um, and and she's her family is Han Chinese, and I was writing more about the the Han Chinese experience right, in, I, I in, in Xinjiang. That, that her, her granddad's a great mm-hmm. um, a great character as well, and a kind of example of that generation gap too. He he was an orphan in 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 Dongbei in the northeast and suffered under the Japanese, and then at some point the PLA came through, and uh, he felt sort of liberated by the Chinese Communist Party, 
and then went with the PLA to Urumqi in the 50s as part of this uh, quite, quite large uh, migration of Han to, to Urumqi. And when I went back there with Mia for Spring Festival, I think that was the year of the horse, um, he just dominated the whole conversation over dumplings and just really gave her a earful about, you know, you listen to the Chinese Communist Party, you know, uh, you know, Um, and Mia was just totally ignoring him and playing with her phone so I I think uh, a lot of these yeah a lot of these concerns which would be sort of a a, a big thing for their parents are just sort of not really in the universe of of a lot of young people today so this character Da Hai uh, he self-identifies as a Diao Si Diao Si is a Chinese slang word that if you've listened to our podcast you've probably come across before it's a slang word that means kind of loser uh, it's actually a little more vulgar than that, but uh, many you know young people have kind of reclaimed the word and often use it in a an almost self-affirming way. Can you give us your sense for what Diaozi culture in China is, and and is there maybe a similar subculture or an attitude that you know of in the West? I mean, you've already fessed up. You you played World of Warcraft, so certainly you've come across some people. Like that. Yeah, it's that's a good question. I'm not sure what the the Westerner equivalent would be because I think the most important element of Diaozi culture is that you self-identify as a Diaozi. It's a point of pride. It's like you would be going around um, in in London or Brooklyn and saying, "Yeah, I'm a total loser." Um, or maybe maybe nerd would be a better sort of equivalent. Yeah, but, but it's it's, it's, a, it's a wider scope. Yeah, it's wider than, than scope, nerd. but it's something that was originally um, pejorative and now sort of. I think I think pride. what it. Um, I think it's it's it nerd. At least you're claiming in- intellect, yeah. or you, you, when you're when you say you're a nerd, you're at least saying I'm really good yeah. at STEM, or I'm I'm. You know, I think the main I think the main difference is, is is this. I think all of these you could have all of these semi pejorative terms in English, which would feel like a put down, but uh, a lot of young people claim the term diaosu uh, as if to say like we yeah that's right we don't have any opportunities in life. There's all of these inequalities, which mean we can't really be a big success we can only be a female elf mage on world of warcraft but that's not our fault um that's kind of society's fault and we're just the passive recipients of it so we're just going to own this loserdom and create a little culture where we can all mm. claim that term for our it's own a sense so of I camaraderie right. sort of right yeah, yeah. yeah exactly we're all we're all kind of the new loser comrades uh, i like the characters in the book make of course, very evident, and you've already mentioned it, uh, that there is a, a big uh, generation gap. And I suppose that is obvious. After all, no Chinese person born before the 1970s or 80s could really have imagined what the country would be like by the time the generation you describe came of age. Um, but is there also a generation gap in the China watching community? Do you find that your view of China is significantly different from older writers and commentators, including your hosts on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, like a, an expat generation gap. <laughs> I, I I like that. So <laughs> I I came to China in two thousand and eight. Um, what say, Sonny? Could you please speak? <laughs> You've got the old generation China watcher here. Uh, yeah, David, David's groovy. Um, we I, so in t- two thousand and eight. I guess I'm kind of classic. Uh, Olympic wave, I've heard that used to describe my lot who came to China out of university. And 2008 was the moment where people started talking about China in a different way. It was no longer like, you're going to China? Why are you going to China? What's there? 
Uh, before that, it was kind of poverty and oppression. But after 2008, I feel it the, the narrative shifted and it was more this is a country on the rise again and it's having a more sort of powerful role to play in the world. And for, for me and my generation, that's the China which we've we've kind of known and lived with. Even when we come, even if when we come, the 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 reality is a little bit different. You know, I mean, in in two thousand seven eight, there were what like three subway lines. It's 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 changed a lot since since then. But uh, I do think that, and I'm always interested in reading China writing from the generations before me. Um, I guess you have kind of two or two or three or four. Like if you start with the, those in the seventies, your um, Simon Lays and Orville Shell and people coming during the Cultural Revolution, then we have those who come after in the 80s when it's possible to, to come in again, um, the 90s, which which would be kind of more more, more you, I guess, Jeremy and Kaiser, um, David, you got here in 88, right? And and then at the tail end, you have, have my lot who came in when it's already totally different. And I think that's why I wanted to write about people my age because they were growing up and coming of age in a in a similar China to what I was seeing around me. But you've kind of avoided actually answering my question, which is: yeah, do, do you think you look at China differently from from the way we do, or people older than us? Uh, and by people, I mean you know ch- people who write about well, China. I don't know how how, how do you look at China, Jeremy? Um, we you know we. <laughs> He's never actually read any from a great stuff. distance <laughs> right now. Um, how do I look about China, which is which is differently? Besides the besides the different kind of environment for it, I think maybe the there's a prevailing mood which is quite pessimistic about China right now. I feel it's become the rigor for China watchers to say how, about how regressive um, the politics are, and then maybe some some people would say, oh, that's that's a sort of a cycle which we've been before, and I, I agree that at the top it feels really sort of tightened in. And just living here, you can feel it tightening around you. But I've been—I haven't been writing about politics. I don't consider myself that kind of a writer. I've been writing about society and young people, and it's there that I've seen, I think, a different force moving in an opposite direction, which is progress in society. Uh, and on that bottom level, changing attitudes to to sex and dating and individual rights and the role of society, which. I think is advancing society, even though the politics I think is quite clearly trying to move it backwards. So I, I'm not all pessimistic. Whereas we, the barnacled, are all obsessed with the, the politics and are haunted by <laughs> the ghosts of 1989. Um, I'm not saying that, but de- but definitely for the people I write about, and maybe for me as well, I, because we have no lived experience or knowledge of Tiananmen or of uh, of the 80s and the 70s there's a little bit more feeling of a sort of there's some more I think, empowerment. I think also maybe uh, Alec comes along uh, in the era of what we've called feral sinologists um, maybe there's there's no such thing right. as a China right. watcher now there are just lots of very very you know Alec yeah Alec is, is like a very very good the king of feral sinologists because he's because he's really done you know uh, China is so varied and complex and and there there is no such thing as you know the what every Chinese people person thinks about something now as Jeff Jeff Wasserstrom says it's it's a meaningless question maybe that's could that be 
the difference. Chinese well, is so Chinese. so multi multifarious now that there's nothing you can do. All you can do is cover some little piece yeah. of it. Yeah, it's, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I'd, maybe what I'm saying is that there are, it's, a, it's a matter of different reference points. To me, the reference points of history are, are those that I've read and for the people I write about, sometimes they haven't even read them. I, I mean, I was on the curb one afternoon with uh, with Lucifer and we were just chatting and he turns to me and says, um, just out of nowhere, like, Alec, what was the Cultural Revolution? <laughs> like he, he's, he's like, okay, maybe, maybe this guy knows. And it turns out when it was covered in school, it. like briefly, he he was he just wasn't listening. He was more interested in kind of seventies punk history in Britain. Um, he's interested in Britain's Cultural Revolution, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, baby. Uh, you know that generation of writers that you've come up in. Uh, there have been a number of people who have written, you know, on topics not exactly related to. I, I, I. I uh, I saw at one point that you you were you toyed with the word ambition. You were talking about that as the theme, and I thought, ah, well, you know, that title had already been taken. Tell us about some of the people who you had been reading and who gave you, you know, maybe influence when you set out to write Wish Lanterns. Sure, I mean, I mean, there's this great corpus of China books to to draw and just kind of real expertise and amazing writers uh, here and who have been here. Um, Factory Girls is one of my favorite China books, Leslie Chang, which also deals with young stories um, and young people uh, trying to change their futures. Um, my good friend Eric Fish also wrote a terrific book about China's millennials called China's Millennials, um, which is a, a sort of really sort of wide scope look at the at uh, a lot of the issues. Yeah, we, we, we did a podcast with him, in fact, about the book. I think I think my so in, in a way, my biggest influences for this book weren't China books, though more examples of uh, of literary nonfiction, which I really admired. Uh, Catherine Boo, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, is is just an amazing Terrific book. Terrific book. Uh, Barbara Demick, her book about North Korea, Nothing to Envy, was also quite a quite a direct uh, influence. Both of those books, um, I admired their their approach. Uh, Catherine Boo also doesn't insert herself into the story, and um, and their rigor, the kind of rigor of their research, and the way that they tell a story in a very narrative way but through it uh, you you gain a lot of insights about um about uh, india and about north korea and and that was something i was trying to to emulate with uh, my approach i thought i'm surprised you didn't mention uh, uh sang yes yeah China lot, yeah. chinese lives yeah just yeah like the kind of the studs this is the studs turkle studs, of, yeah, uh, of right. china these oral histories mm-hmm. just just talking to people, um, spending time with them, and then putting that on on the page, kind of showing, not telling, and then hoping that that the insights sort of shine through that. Hey, so we're running a little out of time. I want to get one more question in. I mean, so one of the things that the young people that you write about have in common, and perhaps it's even maybe the defining characteristic of the generation to which they belong, is that they were all children of the one-child generation, of the one-child policy. What effect do you believe this has had on them? I mean, I often refer when talking about this this one-child generation to something that our good friend Mary Kay Magistad, who used to report for PRI out of Beijing, once said, and that was that for every entitled single child she had met, she'd also met an empowered one. Uh, what's your take on the balance? Are they in these spoiled little shits, or are they, you know, empowered and 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 independent and and strong strong-minded and willful? Sure, I think I'd slightly challenge both um, both entitled and empowered in in a, in a subtle way. Although I think that there, you also get a lot of a lot of that when you have. Um, when you grow up in this very different China, when you can be slightly more confident and have more opportunities, but I think a main effect of a single child generation is that 
at a certain age when you're starting middle school, suddenly all of this pressure is heaped on you, which can be totally suffocating, study pressure, especially for the post-80s generation. There was this conveyor belt from school to a good Gaokao mark to a good university, then to a good job and immediately find a, a spouse and a life partner. And I think that really suffocated the generation, especially those born in the mid 80s. I think it's slightly different in the post 90s and the late 80s generation, which means that there isn't this uh, sort of this little empress syndrome. I just didn't really, I didn't really see it. Um, I've, I've met, yeah, I've yeah, met, it doesn't really come out. Yeah, I've, in the book. I've, I've met some spoiled brats. I've met a bunch of sort of rich kids who would who would classify, but you don't you don't grow up alone. You always have cousins around you. You always have a, other people at school, and I think maybe the the main legacy that I saw was this sense of competition, a sense of success is a zero-sum game, especially that pressure heaped on you by your parents. Right. The sociology of scarcity, yeah. Right. Anyway, yeah, that's 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 fascinating. Um, and Alec, this has been a real pleasure. Congrats once again on the book. I mean, it's it's been well-reviewed and, and, and deservedly so. Okay, so we're getting to the end of the show, but before we get to our recommendation segment, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. Follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please remember to leave us a good review on the Apple App Store. Recommendations, Jeremy Havat. Okay, uh, I've been doing a lot of recommendations that are not China-related recently, and I'm going to do another uh, one of those today. A book called Unreliable Sources, How the 20th Century Was Reported by John Simpson, who is a veteran British uh, foreign correspondent. And I think if you're a, a listener of Seneca, you're probably interested in the news and how it's reported. And uh, this is a, a tour through the 20th century uh, as it was reported by journalists, good and bad. And of course, there are a lot of bad, uh, uh, there's a lot of bad reporting and some very good reporting. Um, and yeah, it's a fun book. Excellent. John Simpson, we'll check that one out. David, what do you have? Um, I'm going to recommend a book that's uh, f- more for uh, my, I should say, colleagues worldwide, pe- people who uh, are tasked with teaching young college people this the history of modern China and trying to look for updated and very interesting materials. It's the new book called The Oxford Illustrated History of Modern China, edited by Jeff Wasserstrom. And uh, it's a, a, a very uh, uh, concise, very interesting book with lots of uh, Seneca podcast, uh, you know, former Seneca podcast guests. Rana Mitter is in there, um, uh, Ian Johnson, Jeff Wasserstrom, of course. Um, Stephen R. Platt. We have not had him on the show, uh, but yeah, William, heavy, right? Autumn in the heavens. William, William Callahan. All pe- people that people I should say, past and future yes, Seneca guests yes. are on are in this book, and it's it's a very well done. It's it's richly illustrated, and I heartily recommend it for those of you uh, like me who ha- is, are looking for interesting things about modern China to give to college students to read. It's funny that you should mention Platt. He comes up in my recommendation. So, but let's let's not usurp Alec here. Alec, what do you have for us this week? Uh, I'm going to recommend a podcast, um, which I, I hope will be of interest to, to listeners to this podcast. Um, it's called Barbarians at the Gate. It's um, run out of Beijing by co-hosts Jeremiah Jenny and James Palmer. Um, 
And you can find it on Jeremiah's uh, website, granitestudio.org. Yes, it's it's excellent. I was on a recent show talking about a kind of a youth legacy from kind of May 4th through Cultural Revolution in the 80s and uh, slightly, maybe slightly less professional uh, kit than we've got in front of a table here. But James Palmer and Jeremiah Jenny have uh, just such a weight of knowledge of uh, China history behind them. Um, and, they really do. And I, I, I really recommend it for someone who wants all of his nuggets from Chinese history. They've done topics like the Anushan Rebellion and Jakob Beg, this uh, Tajik adventurer um, who kind of uh, quelled Xinjiang in the, in the 19th century. And it's just, uh, it's just really fascinating for people who want these little gems from uh, China's history. Next time I see those guys, I'm going to show them how for under $500 they can kit out and make themselves sound really, really, really good. I mean, that's my one one complaint, and it's a minor one. I mean, it's still just totally worth listening to. Totally agree. Okay, great, great, great recommendation. Mine, uh, I've been unboxing. Our stuff finally arrived from China. I mean, an, an enormous container load of stuff. And so I've been unboxing books and putting them on the shelves. And I happened to pull two books out simultaneously, and they happened just to be next to each other in a box. One was uh, was McPherson's, James M. McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, which I think is the best single volume history of the American Civil War that I know of. And the other was, I mean, it's, it's so weird that you mentioned him, Stephen Platt's uh, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom. Uh, oh and, yeah, and, great and book. They, yeah, right. It's it's. I had a galley copy of it, and I pulled that out right next to it, and it suddenly occurred to me that really, you know, he's talking about the Taiping Civil War, which was actually it would actually overlap for a year with the the American Civil War, and mm-hmm. uh, and he brings this up in 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 his book actually. Uh, interesting to read side by side because they're both sort of north-south civil wars of sort. Glad anyway. to see our ESP is working, working Kaiser. It is, it is. I mean, without you having to kick me under the table like we usually do. <laughs> thanks once again, Alec, for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Kaiser and Jeremy and, and David. Uh, David, thanks so much. And, and Jeremy, of course, great to have you here in, in the beautiful Seneca South studio. And thanks to the bookworm where we are sitting, looking out on a beautiful Beijing blue sky day. Yeah, is it really? It's a blue sky yeah. day. Oh, oh, nice. I'm envious. Ah, well, anyway, the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng and to Soraya Darabi from SubChina. And as David said, to our friends from the bookworm in Beijing, drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca podcast. And of course, follow us on Twitter at Seneca podcast. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next week. Take care. Thanks, Alec. And later, guys.